Let me introduce you. Sure. Uh, we have on the on the phone on the phone today on the conversation, Lee Spiller. He is the executive director for the Texas chapter of the Citizens Commission for Human Rights in the state of Texas. And if you've not heard of the CCHR, they're a watchdog organization that has been for decades now raising awareness of the abuses being done in the name of treating mental illness. And Lee regularly appears before congressional leaders with information, in fact, you just did recently, that help us understand that we're not over-medicating our, our citizens, including our children, which can cause lifelong mental damage and which the health industry has a long history of doing. So first of all, Lee, I want to thank you uh, for joining me here on The Conversation. And let's just jump right in. What can you tell us about the last three or four mass shootings involving young men, particularly in Uvalde, Buffalo, Highland Park, and most recent at a mall in Minneapolis? Are all of these young people on drugs? And if so, who is giving them these drugs and what are they doing? What is what is behind these shootings and, and how are drugs involved? Okay, so not all shootings um, are the people on drugs. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that, you know, some of these drugs do have violent side effects and we cannot predict um, who's going to have them. You know, I, I, was t- I was testifying, uh, gosh, back in 2020 after um, the Odessa and uh, El Paso shootings. And um, sure, you know, I gave a laundry list of shooters that were on drugs. But, you know, the thing I pointed out is that even rare side effects in the whole broad scheme of things, when you have excuse me, tens of millions of people on drugs, even rare side effects, you still have a lot of exposure. Um, You know, and the fact is we don't collect information adequately enough. You know, we're still waiting on autopsy uh, results for uh, the Uvalde shooting. And we were told it would be three or four months before they come out. Uh, We waited longer than that for the Sutherland Springs shooter. So Uvalde... You know, what was reported was that um, he had no mental health history. Um, but without a, without a toxicology report, what about people who, who are using those drugs uh, recreationally? Um, it happens. You know, Parkland, uh, Nicholas Cruz, in interrogation, he admitted to using Xanax recreationally. Yeah, I know and, that that um, is a prevalent issue now because a lot of these kids either get it through their psychiatrist or their parents' psychiatrists because their parents have these things sitting around the house. And that's and also, uh, what's that, Adderall? What's, yes, that, Adderall? what's that drug that kids use now where they're one and they're studying and they're cramming yeah, for... That's Adder- yeah, that's Adderall. Um, it's a stimulant. Um, you know, there's a long history of stimulant drugs and, you know, psychotic behavior. Um you know, that's been around forever. I was at the FDA hearings on in uh, 2006 when they decided to uh, issue a medication guide warning parents about sudden cardiac, cardiac death, um, worsening aggression, hallucinations. You know, those are some pretty significant side effects. I mean, that's, you know, my opinion is if you go to a doctor, they want to prescribe something like that. There needs to be real informed consent. And frankly, they shouldn't ask if you have a gun. They should assume you have a gun and they should warn you, you know, you may want to uh, consider not having that in, possess- in your possession while you see how you're going to do on this. Because 
people aren't warned. They should be warned. You know, there's what they uh, there's a technical term for it where they'll have a drug that comes out, for example, a smoking cessation drug. Um, and then the uh, year or two later, when that uh, patent expires, they'll repurpose the same drug, but this this time it'll be to treat anxiety disorder. And they did that, I think, with Zoloft or something like that. And the, uh, yeah, I, I think Wellbutrin. I, Wellbutrin, I'm not positive, right. but I think is Wellbutrin became Zyban, the anti-smoking drug. Mm-hmm. So you've got somebody, and I assume that Zyban has a warning for suicide on it, but uh, even that, you know, I went to the FDA hearings on that, and number one, um, some of these stories from survivors or families were intense. I mean, you know, you didn't just have people who uh, killed themselves. They were driven, you know, like people who would hang themselves from the closet rod, but it was too low, so they had to hold their feet up until they went unconscious. Jeez. You know, I mean, or, you know, someone who stabbed herself in the heart multiple times. I mean, this is, you know, that's one of the things that worries me. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like people are driven and not everybody, again, not every, not everybody is going to have that happen. The problem is we don't know who is. And the problem is people are not adequately informed. I mean, look how many years, look how many years Americans have been told that depression is because of a biochemical imbalance in the brain. And yet recently this study comes out confirming what we've been saying for years. Guess what? Not so. Right? But, you know, over, you know, between 80, according to psychology today, between 80 and 90% of Americans believe that, uh, that that's a chemical imbalance of the brain. That's a theory. Yeah. We've seen the ads. It's a very convincing ad. It shows a cartoonish character profile, his head, and it shows these little fake bubbles that act like they're fizzing, and then they show the effect of the drug that they're trying to sell you and how it calms you down. It's a very effective, uh, simple, I guess, to understand. Also, people walk around and they, oh, yeah, I got bipolarism, or oh, yeah, he's got bipolar. They, they, it, it, they act as if these are just like common cold-type mental illnesses that happen to everybody. It seems like since the 60s and 70s and the 80s, we have been slowly convinced that everybody is suffering from some form of mental illness. And your organization has been mentioned in 67 that there were a group of psychiatrists that got together in Puerto Rico and said that's exactly what they wanted to do, was convince this country and other countries that we can medicinally treat every mental illness and we're going to do it damn it and that's what they've been doing how and isn't that scary it's, it's frightening and you know i read recently in the real dr fauci written by robert kennedy who's also part of a group that does great work for uh, children's health defense uh, interestingly he has been at the helm of nihaid for a long time and he has approved a lot of these these drugs into the market, or at least he's pushed them to market. I, th- I never realized that he had so many inroads and connections with all these different types of, you know, uh, psychiatry and uh, virology. And uh, I guess he's the gatekeeper for all of this. How did we get it so wrong? And why, why are not people looking into this? Why do they have a hands-off approach to this strategy that's causing psychiatric breakdown in society? 
Well, I think the um, the problem that we have is that um, you know these theories offer a convenient excuse, a convenient explanation, and um, they offer um, a great money maker for psychiatry and the drug industry. And pills are a lot con- more convenient than changing your lifestyle. You know, it's, it's this perfect storm of influences. Some of them financial, some of them, uh, some of them desperation. Right? Um, the psychiatry doesn't know causes. They don't know cures. People have problems. People get desperate, and they are there to, you know, for better or worse, they're there to take advantage of it. And when I say take advantage. You know, it's not like there aren't people who want to to help people, but I mean, this is an industry that uh, has been okay with this, you know, chemical imbalance theory um, being bandied around, and then tried to back away from it, saying, "Oh no, that's false," and uh, uh, we don't say that. Well, I tell you what, I, over the last twenty five years, I've certainly interviewed plenty of patients who were convinced that they had a biochemical imbalance of the brain. And unfortunately, that theory continues to grow. I have no doubt that it sells drugs. And most recently, you know, it's our state-approved um, health textbooks that um, tell children that these drugs are um, caused by a chemical imbalance, or that these diseases are called caused by a chemical imbalance. And um, what what and they, now they always say that, but what chemicals are in balance? What 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 chemicals are they referring to? Did they ever get into specifics about that? Uh, yeah, um, you know, with the antidepressants, it was you know serotonin was the oh, theory. I, I think there was another one like norepinephrine, um, but the theory has been that you have a biochemical imbalance. And uh, two problems with that, you know, how do you test for it in the brain of a living person? And uh, the other one is, you know, what's normal? You know. I feel like psychiatry has actively promoted it along with another, you know, a number of other theories and some of them are degrading. I remember being in 2004, being in a hearing in front of the Texas house human services committee. And we were talking about drugging and foster care. And the two things that had been being discussed most were a, the overrepresentation of uh, minority children in foster care, and B, the drugging. And this psychiatrist got up to testify. Kid you not. He said the reason so many foster care kids are drugged is because they come from bad gene pools. Bad gene pools. When you've just been discussing, you know, populations that are discriminated against. I mean, it was reprehensible. We ended up having a... Uh, press conference with uh, a number of groups to call him out on that. How dare him? Mm-hmm. You know, this is somebody who's recommending policy based on discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, You'll, you know, these theories yeah. keep going. And it was like one of, that was one of my comments on the textbook is we are, you know, these things have theories in them that are likely to be obsolete before the ink is dry on this textbook. And guess what? I think this serotonin theory just became obsolete. Well, it got scant medical attention for obvious reasons, and the media didn't report on it because they get a lot of money from Pfizer and AbbVie and Merck and others. Um, 
How is it that schools have become the instruments of big pharma? You've seen a lot of this. Kids get unruly. Uh, they get put on drugs or they're not allowed to come back to school. How did that relationship form between the government, which more or less does the bidding, and now they're also doing this now with trans-affirming uh, 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 conditioning, not letting the parents get involved, doing things behind the back. And we all know that depression and anxiety are, are part of that treatment with people who identify as trans. What do, what do you make of this new direction that we're going in now with this with this new psychiat psychiatric evaluation that people are, can can perceive themselves as being born in the wrong body? What, what's your take on all that? Uh, we don't really get into the gender issues. Truth is, um, you know, we deal with psychiatric abuse, and we're just as likely to help someone who uh, is homosexual as we are someone who is straight. Yeah, you know, people sure. people get abused, and uh, that's that's what we're here to deal with is the abuse, uh, the shame of it. Like with the schools, I don't know the entire history, but I can tell you that when you're really looking at fraud and um, wrongdoing, the best populations are captive populations that are funded. Right. I mean, a good example is nursing home residents. You know, for years there have been complaints that nursing home residents are heavily drugged. And when it really comes down to it, they are a population of convenience because they're all in one place and they have funding. And I think that schools are a marketplace. In fact, there was a uh, mental health program, you know, like a mental health education program being done in North Texas schools by the uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School Department of Psychiatry, and the head of the program was someone that we recognized, you know, that we had dealt with before who has long-standing ties to drug companies. So we wanted to know more about it. We wanted every document related to this program. And, you know, the school districts gave us what they had, but then UT argued against the release of their documents because they said that schools were a marketplace and that disclosing that data would upset their marketplace interests. I'm sorry, these are schools. These are people's children. I don't care about your marketplace interests. And I certainly don't want somebody with deep connections to pharmaceutical companies being the person who educates children on mental health. It's a conflict of interest. Well, again, kind of going back to that question, you know, when you look over the m number of mass shootings, which is the reason we're having mm -hmm. this conversation, you can clearly see that from about 2012 uh, up to today, there has been a steady increase. I think we peaked at around 2018, which is before COVID. But then there was a decline probably because people were being huddled and, you know, lockdowns and all that. People were afraid to go out. But then you have now three years of increasing resurgence of mass shootings. And I have to believe that compounding the problem is the anxiety and the depression that a lot of young people felt when they were being kept home from school and then subsequently getting treated for these same disorders. It's almost as if this group has been primed. And, and it only takes a few people to have side effects for there to be the number of mass shootings that we're seeing. So again, I asked That's, you. Yeah. So now you're you're expressing the fear that I have, and um, again, we're still waiting for toxicology on Uvalde. 
But, you know, let's remember whether you're talking like street drugs are usually talked about in terms of being mind altering or psychoactive. And then the psych drugs are, you know, psychoactive or psychotropic. And if you look all three of those things up in the uh, dictionary, it all boils down to one set of circumstances. They affect mood, cognition, and behavior. In other words, mood, your judgment and thought processes, and your behavior. So I don't care whether it's a street drug or a psych drug, but please, let's don't be the purveyors of dangerous drugs that, you know, this is somebody's going to go off on. When I was much younger, I was a musician and, you know, played in a lot of bars. And, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that drunk people get in bar fights. Yeah. And yet we have tens of millions of people running around on mind-altering drugs, driving their cars under the influence of mind-altering drugs. You can't tell me that a certain percentage of those aren't going to become violent. According to Statista, of the mass shootings between July 1982 and July 22, the presence of prior signs of mental health issues. It's not specifying whether or not they have mental illness, but it does specify that they are having issues that may be treated. 64% of mass shootings between 18, uh, 1982 and July of 22, 64%, there's some level of mental health issue involved. Uh, with all of the treatment going on, why are why are cases of anxiety and depression and all these other ailments? Why is mental illness on the rise in the United States? You know, it, you nailed it again. Uh, that's the question we have. If if so many people are getting treatment, why are we seeing these outcomes? You know, it reminds me, and and I didn't I, I didn't know that stat from Statista. I've been looking at the uh, Secret Service reports on it and. Number one, it seems like there's so many things that correlate more with violence than mental illness does. Past criminal behavior. Um, stressors, right? Things that we could actually, you know, criminals, it's easy. If you're a violent criminal and you continue to be violent, you don't belong on the street. right? Just that Makes simple. Sense. Stressors. Yeah. If people are financially stressed, what are we doing as a country not creating opportunities for people to go out and help themselves? Right. Right. What are we doing to clean up our neighborhoods? And instead we go, oh, it's just mental illness. Really? You can't do that. You know, the mental health professionals can't predict violence. The threat assessment professionals can't reliably predict violence. So what you really do is you end up targeting people who may never become violent. And in the process, people are going to get abused. And if you're not careful, a lot of people may end up on drugs that are themselves associated with violence. You know, I, I, I'm glad you zeroed in on the mass shooting statistics. For some reason, I haven't done that, and I haven't compared it with things like drug prescriptions. Um, I did look at uh, school mental health legislation uh, versus teen suicide rates in our state, and I found it really interesting that the more of this legislation we passed, the higher the suicide rates got. And then in researching it, I found out, well, guess what? These programs aren't particularly well-studied for adverse effects. So in well, essence, in essence, whether you're talking about violence prevention or suicide prevention, we are perpetrating one grand social experiment. And unfortunately, when it comes to schools, our kids are the guinea pigs. <laughs> 
You also have uh, some interesting statistics on incarceration and the treatment of, of African Americans at a much higher rate proportionally, and even with things like schizophrenia. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, tell me about that research. Um. Well, one of the things I, I found interesting was that, um, you know, th- this disproportionality in the schizophrenia diagnosis, I don't know if you realize it, but back during the civil rights movement, um, there was a paper written called The Protest Psychosis. And prior to that time, uh, schizophrenia tended to be looked at something that, you know, like you would have articles in ladies home journal and it was non-dangerous intended to affect board housewives and blah 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 the civil rights movement comes on and the next thing you know it becomes the angry black man and you have drug ads that are tailored to that and they the theory was that african-american men who got involved in the civil rights movement were not up to the stresses of that i mean what garbage yeah no kidding Right. That's that's you know, and you you see it over over and over again. Look at uh, you know Buck versus Bell, which was the Supreme Court decision justifying forced sterilization of people that were mentally defective. Defective. I don't even know how many people got sterilized, and it went on for a long time. And the Buck versus Bell decision happened, I believe, in 1927. And did you know that to this day it still stands? Really. Yeah. What is your background in all of this? Where did you uh, start getting involved with some of this, that the Citizens Commission for Human Rights? How did you get involved? What's your background? Okay, my background is not medical, that's for sure. I was a skip tracer. and uh, What's a skip 19- tracer? Um, that's somebody who finds people that don't want to be found. You know, So I worked for a company that repossessed cars, and I would go out at night, and I would repossess cars. Well, part of that is you have to track down debtors that don't want to be found. So maybe I had some investigative ability, but mainly um, I had a great aunt and also my best friend's mom that had gotten shock treatment. And I just found that detestable. You know, like my best friend's mom was every bit as loving a mom as my mom was, only she was blunted. She couldn't show affection like my mom did. And I, it, it always bothered me. And so in 1997, my boss was um, working on banning shock treatment for old people. He'd gotten it banned in Texas for kids in 1993. We had taken a run at a total ban in 1995. And in 1997, he calls me up and says, do you think you could come work with us for the legislative session you know, or the rest of the legislative session? And, you know, we really want to do this. And so I dropped everything, even though you know, the pay was horrible. And I just went, yeah, for that, you bet. And uh, in three months, I interviewed probably about 100 shock survivors. Mm-hmm. And their stories were just so horrific and so amazing. And I realized that you know I could just never leave. So for 25 years, I've studied everything I can get my hands on. I've spoken everywhere I can speak. And uh, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that you go in, you know, through kind of an evolution. I really liked investigating the cases. Nowadays, I really like 
finding out what makes this tick or looking at for parents' rights in school mental health, for example, and then going out and doing presentations on it. Because, you know, like in Texas, the last, you know, like after Santa Fe and then Odessa and El Paso, um, the solution to school safety became school mental health. And, I mean, it is intrusive. You know, universal mental health screening, teaching children, um, you know, like basically mental health education. And uh, there have always been questions about whether mental health education is a marketing effort. In fact, in 2016, Stat News reported that uh, drug companies were developing comic books and lesson plans that just happened to push things for which they have product. Yeah, of course. And it. Right. In 2000, there was a drug marketing scheme happening in Texas that involved state employees and drug companies. And uh, at one point, they made a children's depression coloring book that taught young children that if you feel sad for a really long time, you can go see a special doctor and he'll give you medicine. And of course, this kangaroo in the story um you know he takes it now he takes his medicine all day and he can sleep and he's not aggravated he even eats dessert right i mean well gosh what kid doesn't want to eat dessert um so we've got you know this educational effort then teaching children to self-refer like wait a minute these are underage children what do you mean self-refer what does that mean to refer themselves to a counselor oh i see I and see. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Nobody goes. Nobody gets locked up against their will for diabetes. If your kid is talking about mental health to anyone outside the home, you need to know about it. Yeah, you sure. need to be driving the train. Well, that's the whole point. Of what I was talking about before is because it it is a form of psychological abuse to confuse a child with concepts that will mess with uh, their. Uh, I mean, they just want to grow up. They don't need to have all of these things put into their head. If you give a kid too many choices when they're young, they can't. They can't decide. They they get anxious trying to decide. That's we learn this. You know, if you give a kid six different choices for ice cream, he can't make the right choice because he's worried he's going to make the wrong choice, and that's stressful, and that's a terrible thing. What you do is you say you want vanilla or uh, chocolate, and They'll make the right choice. (laughs) Right? You know, isn't that interesting? Because you get a child stressed and confused, and then you teach them that their perfectly normal emotions are potentially a disease. Do you see how... That's right. That's what concerns me. You know, like, like perhaps this is a marketing effort. Sometimes, because, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I know this, is true that our mental health industry, uh, and I'm sure you know this, all of these places across the country where they take in people who are suffering from you know, uh, name anything. And there's no money going into this. There's no research going into this. They're not doing intensive studies to try to figure out how either medicinally or non-medicinally they can cure these people or prevent there's none of that. There's no money in it. There's no investment in it. Most most people, unless you're wealthy and you have a mental illness and you go, you're going to go into a very bad environment where you risk being abused sexually, physically, your stuff is stolen. Fellow uh, uh, people that are in there, they're all doped up. Uh, they come out slobbering all over themselves. I mean, it's pathetic, the state of our so-called mental health industry. And yet every time there's a shooting, they talk about all this money. 
that's going to be given to mental health. We're going to we're going to really help mental health. And what they're really doing is just empowering, I think, big pharma into prescribing more drugs that that don't solve the problem, and in fact, do the opposite. They create. We're going to become a nation of zombies if if we don't put a put a stop to this madness. Um, and that's why I'm such a big fan of your organization, because you're in one of the few organizations that can push back against this. Unfortunately, I think because they've they've used uh, you know techniques and tactics to you know to minimalize or marginalize people like you and Robert Kennedy and others, that people don't listen. They're more inclined to uh, accept the advice of the doctor or listen to a commercial that's that's in that's been produced a million dollar commercial man they're they're amazing some of these commercials they dazzle you and they're reading off a litmus a, a, a whole list of things that that will probably kill you if you take their medicine and yet you don't know cuz you're watching people play volleyball on the beach <laughs> you know that is such a such a great point you know and yeah, it's one of the things that worry us. You know, here we are in our second round or third, arguably our third round of mass shootings recently, right? You had Santa, you had well, you had Sutherland Springs, and that guy was on a number of drugs, as was the stabber at the University of Texas. Um, but then you've got um, Santa Fe happens. Uh, that kid was declared incompetent to stand trial. He's alive, so it's not like we get to see his medical records or his toxicology report. Um, then you get so you know, then you get Odessa, and that guy, you know, this is someone who had a mental health history. He um, bounced, and he also had a criminal history, right? Yeah. And just looking at his history and how he bounced back and forth, I'm convinced that to some extent um, there were times when they could have prosecuted and didn't because he was mentally ill. And you know what? If somebody is engaging in dangerous criminal behavior, arrest them. That's what the criminal system is for. There is no mental health cure for that. You know, unfortunately, if somebody is that bad, all you can do is get them off the street because uh, there's no... There's no mental health treatment to solve that, and we get really tired of uh, mental health being posed as the solution because it seems to, you know, when you do that, it's going to fall on people who will never become violent. You know, in in, in 2019, the solution was going to be threat assessment and mental health treatment, which that's how you manage the threat. And literally, in a legislative hearing, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety you know, he was talking about threat assessment teams. And number one, those those guys admit that they're, you know, a little bit better than chance. So there's going to be false positives. And the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety is asked, okay, well, these people, these are people who haven't committed a crime yet. So what can you do? Yeah. And the, and the answer was, well, we can certainly go talk to them. But if we can't commit them, we've got nothing. Well, that's not good enough. There are a lot of people that look awfully dangerous that are never going to do anything dangerous. How do you protect them? You know, you're taking a needle in a haystack and then trying to apply things that, you know, would do that would deal with that person yeah. to the vast majority of people with or without mental health labels who will never become violent. That's injustice. 
you know, and I was reminded of just how unjust when we we went to the Waco courthouse to uh, look at court records on the Odessa shooter. And we stopped off to, at the jail to get the evidence list from when he was arrested um, previously because we wanted to see, did he have any drugs on him? And so while we're waiting for that, beside the window, there's a sheaf of document in its recent arrest reports. And, you know, you're seeing driving while intoxicated, aggravated assault, sexual assault, and all of them have the name of the perpetrator, where it happened, the name of the complainant. And then you get to these that are just blank, and they say psychological. And that's it. We don't even know how many people we are detaining without a warrant. And we don't know... Um, you know, we have no way to examine the court's conduct unless we just happen to go to a commitment hearing. You know, so Florida. Let me see gosh. if I get your position because you're saying that what that there's a one size fit all approach. This threat assessment that you're talking about. What, what do you mean? How do you determine out of an entire uh, you know population of students who's a threat? What, what are they? You can't. So, but you're saying that's what they're. That's their. That's their solution. Let's see yeah. who the risky kids are, and then we'll dope them up, or uh, and well, we'll ask them well, all kinds of questions and get into their heads and stuff like that. Is that what you're you're saying is wrong, or what is? Yeah, what, yeah. That, that's one of the things that's wrong. Now you're not going to do a threat assessment on every child. We have universal mental health screening and all sorts of things, but no threat assessment. The kid did something that made you concerned. Yeah. But every kid does something that makes you concerned. I mean, my God, that's what kids are, are born to do is make parents concerned. And the, <laughs> and the reaction is, is yeah, that's called uh, whatever, uh, you know, corrective behavior. Uh, that's what parents are supposed to do. They're supposed to correct their children's behavior so that as they get older, they learn the rules of the game on how to get along in society. So just by default, every kid is a risk. But I, I, Absolutely. I want... I think that we're both in agreement here is that we need to stop thinking of pharmaceutical drugs as the solution to people who have emotional issues. There has to be another way. There can't just be a pill. That can't be the right. solution. And there has to be proper informed consent. Right? One of your most basic rights is decide to decide what you're going to do with your body. And if somebody wants to give you anything, you need to know what they think you have. How reliable is that? Um, what are they proposing to treat you with? What are the risks? I mean, the benefits that they say go along with that. Yeah. And, a, and what is a true picture of the risks? Because man, if you look at the commercials, all that risk communication at the end, we're so desensitized to yeah, that. We don't, you know, listen. we don't listen. Yeah, we don't pay attention. Well, Lee, right. And yeah. so a true conversation with your doctor on exactly what something does, I think that's more than fair. And I think that when doctors start doing that and they do it well, I think that, you know, like the guys I do, like every time we go to the doctor, I let the doctor know, you know, what we're really into is you look at our stuff, you tell us what's wrong. And then you propose how to handle it. All right? We insist on informed consent. And you know what? Those become, those become the best conversations with our doctors. 
And people should do that. Well, Lee, uh, I appreciate you coming on here with the conversation with uh, with me and talking about this. I'll continue to keep your name and number of my Rolodex because I think you'll be a resource of information. And I want to remind folks that the Citizens Commission for Human Rights is about limiting the abuse that comes from a, a system that you think is on your behalf, but in fact, they're driven and corrupted just like everybody else uh, through profits. And we, we always have to be diligent. You have to be critical when it comes to what you put in your head. And uh, Lee, I appreciate you joining me, and I hope to talk to you again real soon. Oh, Absolutely. by the way, before you leave, uh -huh. uh, is there information, a website, anything that you can give uh, for people who want oh, to find out more information? Absolutely. You know, especially on this chemical imbalance theory and also on mass violence, uh, CCHR International has great information on that. And CCHRint.org is the website. That's CCHRint.org.